So we'll open with a few scriptures. So if you have your King James Version of the Bible, I'd like you to open, first of all, at Psalm chapter 12 and verse 7. And there we read, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. I'm just going to read verse 7 again. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Now, I'm not going to elaborate on this scripture just yet because, as Ken's already said, there may be three or four weeks at this. Um, there's a very big fundamental attack on this very verse um, that holds to that this does not mean the words of God. It actually gives a feminine noun for the word where it says, keep them. And there's a word, them. But I hold true to what the English says this morning, where God will preserve his word from this generation forever. If you could then turn to Psalm 119. And verse 89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. I'm just going to take two more readings from the New Testament. The first one is in Matthew 24. And verse 35. And we find there it says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. That's very important. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words, says Jesus, shall not pass away. And one more scripture. We go to Second Peter. I think most of you know this. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God that spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. I want to just focus on that last little line. But holy men of God speak as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning for the sense of your wonderful presence. I thank you, Lord, that we have been able to come around the table that remembers you. I thank you this morning for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and died on that old rugged cross. We thank you this morning that he is still working that marvelous power that was shown forth on that cross, that power to save, that power to live, that resurrection power which resides in us this morning. Father, I thank you for your word, for your word is eternal. Your word became flesh. Your word dwelt among us. And Lord, we have your word available this morning that we can read each each and every day. 
Father, I just ask that you would give me the things now to say. For us in Jesus' name I pray, giving you thanks. Amen. Okay, before we begin, a short introduction. I love the King James Version of the Bible. But please don't misinterpret what I'm saying this morning as condemnation for reading another version of the Bible. Because the Bible itself was originally written in Hebrew and Greek. Okay? And I understand that there are many people living in Northern Ireland today and even our our own congregation where English is not the first language. But the KJV came to us via the Texas Receptus. The majority are received texts. And the very first translation of that text was by Martin Luther into German. So the Texas Receptus is available not just in English, but in other languages. Also, I could bring you I could bring in loads of other versions of the Bible. In fact, this morning Gary was telling me he has loads of versions. We all have had different versions at a time. And many of these versions will give you most of the truth. That is not in contention this morning, and that's not what I'm questioning. But it is the book that we know as the AB that I believe changed the world. So if you hear something over the next two or three weeks that you think, is he getting at me? Or is he saying something that goes against what you think? Come and chat to me. But I think you know me by now. I don't stand at the door on your way out and check your versions, except for the last couple of weeks. Uh, And I won't be sitting behind you in church and looking over your shoulder. That is not up to me. I can only tell you why this pulpit, why our pastor, why me and many others believe what we believe about this book. So the year 1611 will forever be etched in the mind of every Bible-loving Christian. Evangelicals and even great historians of every age hold dear to the year 1611. A book was published that will go on to be the most popular book of all time, with over 6 billion copies in print and over a billion copies in the United States alone. It is known today by the KJV or the AV, the King James Version of the Bible, or the authorized version. And for many, it is the true standard of all English translations. Such is the majesty of the language and prose, the depth of poetry and linguistics, that it is known as the book that quite simply transformed the English-speaking world. In 1611, the authorized version was called, and I quote, the most influential version of the most influential book in the world of what is now the most influential language. Further described as the most important book in English religion and culture, as well as the most celebrated book in the English-speaking world. In its day, it added more than 257 idioms or sayings to the English language, more than any other single source including a little-known writer called Shakespeare. Brothers and sisters, this book was a culmination of years of diligent prayer, study and translation, but was the center of the explosion of Reformed theology that we see today. It gripped and transformed the world as we know it. It was at the center of revival, the creation of the Commonwealth of Nations, as well as the United States of America. off. 
Queen Victoria was once asked by a diplomatic delegation from East Africa how England had become so powerful in the world. It is stated that the Queen presented him not the number of her fleet, not the number of her armies, not the account of her boundless merchandise, not the details of her inexhaustible wealth, but instead a beautifully bound copy of the Bible. She said, and I quote, tell the prince that this is the secret of England's greatness. How times have changed. England is vulnerable today, as is the rest of the United Kingdom. Controlled by a godless Europe, and attacked from inside by godless nationalists who want us at our weakest to destroy us. But yet today, the, King, the KJV version of the Bible is despised. Despised by many. Brother Jim and I are going to something on a Monday night and you can see the seed of people who just think that this book really is worth very little. And what I want to do is understand why. And by understanding why, I hope that I can present that to you. What I want to show over the coming weeks is that God preserved a standard. One that was and is faithful still today. Last Sunday, our brother Stuart Elliott showed us the sovereignty of God and a very brave sermon, but one that I believe in 100%. Because this morning, brothers and sisters, if you do not believe in the total sovereignty of God, you cannot fully grasp the total inspiration of God, and therefore you cannot grasp the total preservation of God. A guy called Guy Lemur, who defends the King James Version of the Bible, writes this, and I quote, Jesus Christ, the divine word, worked providentially in history to develop the history of the Hebrew and Greek tongues into fit vehicles to convey his eternal saving message. Hence, in the writing of the scriptures, the Holy Spirit did not have to struggle, as modernists insist, with the limitations of human language. The chosen languages were perfectly adapted to the expression of his divine thoughts. Although the scriptures were written during a definite historical period, They are not the product of that period, but of the eternal plan of God. For God states in Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Our opening reading further tells us that the word was settled in heaven. So Jesus, who is the eternal word, past, present, and future, came to earth to proclaim his word, and who in turn is so perfectly content with that word that it is not only settled, but it will stand forever. So now we have a basis for where we want to go. Brothers and sisters, life is full of journeys. Every great roadmap to success always has a starting point, followed by a process which leads to an end result. As a Christian, each and every one of us has a testimony. A story that has a beginning followed by a process that leads to the day and the hour with which we were saved. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, verse 2, looking on to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Now, if you can hold on to our faith, surely you can hold on to a book. In fact, we find that our life has an opening and closing for Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and 2 tells us that there's a time to be born and a time to die. And that's one of those idioms it was placed in the English language and has been used by countless songwriters over the years. And in fact, the lady I spoke to in my work about six years ago didn't realize that I came from the Bible. 
And everything in between is a journey. So it was with God's written word. From the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, when God spoke everything into existence, ex nihilo, or out of nothing came the world as we know it, with all the splendor and majesty, its vastness and wonder, all because God simply spoke. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119, 105, and many of you know this, very famous, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. But brothers and sisters, turn out that light, and it's a path that we dare not tread. Looking at the state of humanity today, especially in Britain and the United States, two powerhouses, we can see that we are somehow walking down a very dangerous road to a life without the true word of God. Removed from our schools, where educational science books give credence to young minds that we somehow came from monkeys, who in turn somehow morphed from fish, who in turn morphed out of rocks. And if you want to go back a step further, the rocks came out of nothing. God's word is removed from our courts, marriage ceremonies, and even out of our very modern liberal churches. But is any wonder when we've accepted adulterated Bible versions in our nation? And churches, we should be expecting nothing less. It is my earnest prayer that your soul's strength comes from the very word of God. Now, my journey to the KJV has not been a smooth ride. I grew up believing that the KJV was the only translation. My granny talked to me with these, those, and thuses when I was about that height. Then I reached my post-salvation years, and guess what? I became educated, or I believed to be educated. And I started to get some understanding of other versions of the Bible. As far as I was concerned, they were all fairly good. Some of the more simplistic English tone, while others used the older, more reliable manuscripts. And next week, or the week after, I hope to go into those older and more reliable manuscripts. I used everything from the student NIV, to the posh ESV, to the expertly updated New King James Version of the Bible. And I even had a look at the Bono critiqued the message. And I said, Bono, and yes, that's your man from you too. Because if you buy the message Bible, he's endorsing it on the back. Brothers and sisters, in my mind, at a point in time, I had left behind that old, restrictive, too hard to understand Shakespearean nightmare using words such as ye, thou, thus, and divers. Surely, surely, God wanted me to read his word in my own 21st century vernacular. This is the dilemma unfortunately facing many today. Over the next, and I say three weeks, could be longer, I want to take you on a journey. Admittedly, I cannot cover every subject, I cannot turn every stone. What I would really love to do is present to you the best available evidence for the reliability of the authorised version of the Bible. Using the best available research from both sides of the argument, believe it or not, When I researched this, I've read countless books, I've read countless sermons, I've gone on to every website from pro to anti and all the rest, and I've actually found some stuff on the anti-KJV sites that actually gives more weight to the argument than the pro-KJV websites. But ultimately what's going to happen is, I don't want you to trust what I say. If you walk out of here and you read the other version of the Bible, that's entirely up to yourself. But I want you to go away and at least question some of these things. And I trust and pray you're better informed on the confusion of which Bible is the correct one. 
Over the next few weeks, I want to explore God's word in the Old Testament, a New Testament and its preservation and setting the scene for the attack on God's word. The journey of the Reformation and the origins of the Bible translations, as well as the multi-Bible nations, the multiple errors, and believe it or not, brothers and sisters, the things that they don't tell you. Just to give you an idea, a little taster of what's to come, I can show you where the New King James Version of the Bible back in 1982 was translated one way, and the version you have today has gone through at least three or four changes to completely pervert just a single word. So I think we're ready then. In the earliest church, anything that was written down, these writings became known as the original autographs. So for example, when Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, on whatever source he wrote it on, it was classed as an original autograph. Once anything was rewritten from an original source, as a secondary source, it became what's known as a copy. That sounds very simple. But this very simple process would in later years become the source of many of today's translation errors. Even God himself showed us in his divine providence when he wrote, himself wrote the law on the tablets of stone for Moses on Mount Sinai. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter 32, verse 15 and 16. reads this, and Moses turned and went down from the mount, and the two tables of the testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both their sides, on the one side, on the other were they written. And the tables were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, graven onto the tables. Now you would think that they were so valuable that Moses, then the people in turn, would have guarded them with their very lives. Not so, for when Moses came down from the mountain and encountered the children of Israel and all out sinful rebellion, he broke the tablets. I once heard somebody say that Peter was like an ostrom, and I also think Peter or Moses was like an ostroman too. He came down and he just lost the rag. He came down and he cracked up and he threw these tablets on the ground. He broke them. And it tells us in verse 19. And it came to pass, as soon as he came nigh unto the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot. And he cast the tables out of his hands and broke them beneath the mount. So there you have it. The word of God officially is gone. According to modern theologians, that since the original autographs are no longer around, then we do not have the complete infallible word of God. But let's see what God did once Moses had recovered his temper. If you turn across to Exodus 34 and verse 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, Hew thee two tables of stone like unto the first, and I will write upon these tables the words that were in the first tables that thou breakest. Now although God wrote on the second set of tablets, it was still a copy of the original he had written. So brothers and sisters, by design and purpose, 
the Lord God Almighty instituted copying. And just because it was copied, it did not stop it still being the word of God. So now that a presence has been ordained, is there another example in the Bible whereby God talks about copying? Well, yes, there is. We see that the copy word of God itself ends up in the Ark of the Covenant under the instruction of God himself. I have to rethink this next week. Under the instruction of God himself, we're reading Deuteronomy 10, verse 2. And I will write on the tables the words that were in the first tables that thou breakest, and thou shalt put them in the Ark of the Covenant. And anyone who understands the Ark of the Covenant was an extremely holy place. Further, the instruction of copying was enhanced as God commanded that the kings of Israel, each and every one of them, personally had a copy of the law. Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 and 19. If you want to turn to it. And it reads this. And it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book and of that which is before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him and he shall read therein all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God to keep all the words of this law and these statutes and to do them. So God actually instructed the kings of Israel to have a copy of the law. And that, that instruction, brothers and sisters, is for us today. To have his word, that we shall read it therein all the days of our life. That we may learn to fear the Lord God ourselves. And that's a healthy respect. To keep all the words of this law and these statutes and to do them. There's another great story in the book of Jeremiah of writing, then copying. Like all servants of God, Jeremiah had a co-worker who contributed to his work and shared his hardship. Scripture tells of one companion named Barak, the son of Neriah, his friend, co-worker, and scribe in these difficult years. When Jeremiah was prevented from going into the temple, he dictated a scroll to Barak, which he then read in the temple. The scroll urged the people to accept the inevitability of Babylon's control and repent. When Micaiah and some noblemen heard the words, they took Barak aside. And Micaiah urged Barak and Jeremiah to hide where they appealed to the king. As the scroll was read to Jehoiakim, he cut it in two and burned it. You would then think, brothers and sisters, that would be the end of it. As with Moses, he broke the tablets, so the word of God is gone. Now the king has gone and cut it in two and burned it. It's completely wiped out. But not in the plan of God. For we read in Jeremiah chapter 36, verse 27 and 28. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. After that, the king had burned the roll and the words which Barak wrote in the mouth of Jeremiah, saying, Take thee again another roll. And write in it all the former words that were in the first row, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, had burned. This tells me that God set a pattern. He spoke, he wrote, and he copied. It does not matter how it arrives, the word of God never changes. So why is it so important as Christians to fully grasp this concept? Because it's quite, quite simply, it's not good enough that the God of this universe 
not only spoke everything into existence, we have to have confidence that he further preserved his word. Not letting some feeble copyist or scribe alter his word, whereby giving rise to the countless theologians and secular translators devising schemes and writing books in order to downgrade the scriptures to pave the way for weaker Bible translations. Because brothers and sisters, be in no doubt that a vast majority of the so-called theologians who are involved in the translation committees are not saved. In fact, their purpose is anti-God. If someone came in here, and particularly Richard Dawkins, because recently I read that he actually praised the King James Version of the Bible. But not because it was the Word of God, because it transformed the English-speaking world. But if I told you that he was part of the translation committee for a new Bible, would you read it? The Old Testament proves that God was well capable of having his word written down. Destroyed, broken, copied, and rewritten. It just did not matter in the providential care of God. As we travel into the New Testament, the word of God no longer resides on paper. The very manifestation of God himself was clothed clothed in flesh, born as an infant to grow as a man who would boldly and physically declare his voice. The Holy Spirit persuades believers to adopt the same view of the Bible that Jesus believed and taught during the days of his earthly ministry. Jesus explicitly denied the theories of modern higher critics, and that's coming in week three. He recognized Moses in the Gospel of Mark. Let's just turn to that. We'll turn to Mark 12 and 26. And as touching the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So here's Jesus himself confirming the book of Moses, and he confirms it by name. He also does the same thing for David in Luke 20 and 42, and also for Daniel in Matthew 24 and 15. So Jesus himself, in the New Testament, gives out the names of the authors of the books of the Bible. Moreover, according to the Lord Jesus, all these individual Old Testament writings combined together formed one divine and infallible book, which he called the Scriptures. Jesus believed that these Scriptures were inspired by the Holy Spirit. For it says in Mark 12, 36, For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, The Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. So again, by the Holy Ghost. That not one one word of the scriptures could be denied if you read John 10, 35, where it says, if he called them gods unto whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. For not one particle of them could perish for Matthew 5 and 18 says, for verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, not one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. And I think, I I believe I heard it in this pulpit one Sunday that when you hear about the jot and the tittle, 
That's not old English language. That is physically little minor marks on the letters. That's how important the Word of God was. That it wasn't just full letters or sentences or sayings that we were taken away. Not even a dot. And that everything written in them was divinely authoritative. So when you read Matthew 4, verses 4, 7, and 10, Jesus responded to the devil with the three words, It is written. The same high view of the Old Testament scriptures was held and taught by Christ's apostles. All scripture, Paul declares in 2 Timothy 3.16, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness. It doesn't say some scripture. It doesn't say some pedal scripture. It doesn't say some removed. Some of the bit taken away. It says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. From our opening reading, Peter adds, no prophecy of scriptures, any private interpretation. But if prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. But modern theologians, folks, will tell you that, that it did come from men. And, and there was holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So you can see that David himself was moved by the Holy Ghost. You can see the men of old were moved by the Holy Ghost. The scriptures were the living oracles through which God spoke, if you believe Acts 7 and 30, 38, which had been committed to his people for safekeeping, Romans 3 and 2, which contained the principles of divine knowledge, Hebrews 5 and 12, and according to which Christians were to pattern their own speech, 1 Peter 4 and 11. To the apostles, it is written, was equivalent to God says. Jesus promised that the New Testament would be infallibly inspired just as the old had been. For we read in John 16, 12 and 13, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak and he will show you things to come. So the Holy Spirit hadn't gone anywhere. The Holy Spirit's never gone anywhere. The Holy Spirit has always been here. So how dare anyone in 2015 or even backwards to say that God can't inspire and keep his own word? The Holy Spirit, Jesus pledged, would enable the apostles to remember their Lord's teaching and understand this meaning as seen in John 14 and 26. By the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. If the Holy Spirit can save a rotten hell to serve a sinner like me through that power in 2003 and keep me through my faults and failures, and the way he values his own word. Brothers and sisters, we have to get real about God's inspiration and his ability to preserve. While on earth, Jesus constantly affirmed his message was eternal since the very words that he spoke had been given to him by God the Father. The Lord also states emphatically in his high priestly prayer that the Father give him the words 
that he spoke to his apostles. For John 17 and 8 says, For I have given unto them the words which, they, which thou givest me. Since the scriptures come from and reside with God, they are eternal. God gave the Jesus Christ, his son, the words of eternal life. If you read John 6 and 68. These words that Christ brought down from heaven for the salvation of his people now remain inscribed in holy writ. And I've got a little quote here, and I really wish it was mine. Words that bring eternal life must of necessity be eternal. Words that bring eternal life must of necessity be eternal. Now, brothers and sisters, I could talk for another two weeks, easing on the timeline of God speaking, of how he records his word, and how it has got to the apostles. But in order for you to understand that along with that very simple process, there comes an attack. Because by the time I get to next week, I want to talk about how the Bible gets to the Reformation and how we got it into our hands. But what I want to talk very quickly on is the attack on God's word. The attack on God's word has been there from the very start. But God in his omnipresence and omniscience knew that his word would be attacked. Since the day that Satan was cast from heaven, he has been working furiously to sabotage the word of God. Satan's very first attack is recorded within the first three chapters of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, we'll turn to it. It should be an easy book to find. I always tell my wife it's the first book of the Bible. It says this, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. The serpent's technique was not to engage in a full-fledged frontal attack of outright denial. He would have failed at that one. He still fails today miserably at the denial, denial of God's word. But rather to undermine the absolute authority of God's word. You see, he's subtle. Extremely subtle. This is precisely what modernists and atheists are doing when they spiritualize scripture. They say, did God really say that? How do you know? Sure, it's been rewritten hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And there's so many documents and there's so many of this and so many of the other. Most Christians have heard those things many times. These attacks on God's revelation most certainly did not end in the Garden of Eden. They have continued unabated. In the New Testament, we see another example of Satan's tactics. Immediately, through that of changing God's word, immediately following Jesus' 40-day fast, Satan engaged them in dialogue. So I always find that very fascinating. Many Christians don't talk to God with a nice dialogue, but the devil himself sat down and said, right, let's have a conversation. Each time Satan tried to tempt Jesus Christ, the Lord answered him by quoting his own words. 
the Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 4 and 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Once again, as we saw with Timothy, where it says all scripture. It doesn't say man shall live by bread alone, but by some words or part words. It says by every single word. And the Greek word there is a word called pas, P-A-S. And it means literally what it says. Every single word. The next two verses, Satan quoted scripture to Jesus, boldly altering his words by omitting a key phrase. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and setteth him in the pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Before I carry on here, just just as a footnote, the devil knows scripture. He knows it very well. And this example, Satan omitted the phrase to keep thee in all thy ways. Demonstrated that the devil is so audacious that he dares to subtract from God's word even when face to face with the author. This right after being informed that man lives by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, the devil tried to alter and take away from God's word. If Satan is so bold to lie to God incarnate, how much more when faced with the likes of fallible men with different agendas? Another of Satan's strategies had been to obscure God's words by hiding them in a morass of manuscripts and Bible versions. He has used this approach for thousands of years, but during the last century has become far more prevalent. As has been stated previously, the devil attacks the Lord's words by using one of his most potent weapons, doubt. He didn't start off by brazenly denying God's words, but rather by attempting to undermine Eve's confidence in them. Only when doubt had set in did he deny God's word to Adam and Eve. His methods are much the same today. The multiplicity of Bible versions that we see today, all claiming to be translated from the oldest and best manuscripts, are just another of Satan's schemes for undermining the authority of God's word. Now I can open any number of Bible versions and take you to hundreds of verses which are translated fantastically well. But brothers and sisters, it's the spirit behind Satan knows that God promised to preserve his word, so he tries to obscure it by surrounding with a dizzying number of varying translations. This can lead to nothing but confusion. And we know that God, through his word, is not the author of confusion. Those who peddle modern modern translations will insist that their Bible is the most accurate translation of the Greek text or most closely represents the original autographs. But I just want to say this. Every new version that I've ever seen is always better than the KJV. It's never better than another modern version. Maybe I'm wrong. All the websites that I've seen, all the people that that I've read, 
the KJV seems to be the one that suffers the most. They will simply boast of how the latest discoveries of the oldest and best manuscripts gave their version added clarity and credibility. Well, if you want to go down that route, apparently they found the tomb of Jesus Christ with a grave somewhere in Jerusalem. If that's the way you want to go, and you're going with the oldest as best, then in that case they found a tomb. But the problem is, brothers and sisters, through the Holy Ghost, we know they haven't got a tomb with a, with, with a grave in it. Because it's empty. They will vainly tout the great scholars found in their translating committees. And I've got some very choice people for you over the next couple of couple, coming weeks. But how do we know who to trust? To whom do we turn when we need to know which Bible to rely on? Which one is truly preserved? Well, I haven't got time to go into that now. But what I want to start next week is to go through how we got from the New Testament right until today. You see, brothers and sisters, we have to have confidence that the book that we read has come to us via the Holy Ghost. That's why I believe best English translation. There may well be a French version or a German version or a Belgian version taken from the Texas Receptus that may well be marginally better. But when we talk about English translations in our own tongue, this is the most accurate that we have. I know and have read about the men who translated this book. Many of them who spent up to six hours in prayer before they decided to even translate a verse. But what I want to leave you with this morning, I'm definitely not doing this next week. Denise, you have that last slide on? I want you to remember these things. God's word, number one, is eternal. It's so important when you're looking at Bible versions and the word of God. It's eternal. It was there before the world. It's here right now. And it will always be there. God's word became flesh. God's word is inspired. God's word is forever settled in heaven. You can't change it. So the version you have in your hand, it must, it must have the complete word of God. And I will show you over the coming weeks that certain versions remove up to 5,000 words. And some of the so-called better versions remove key phrases that alter the prophecies of the Old Testament. The things you sing about, the promise you stand upon are altered because they change words. God's word has been perfectly preserved. So anyone that tells you that the original autographs don't exist, it doesn't matter. I fell in that trap when I was just newly saved. I thought, well, we can't know God's word fully. Well, we can. Because God inspired people to translate it and keep it. And finally, coming alongside God's word, it has always been under attack. The enemy can only go so far with you, brother and sister. When I wasn't saved, I always knew in my heart that there was a God. 
I've heard many testimonies where people have stood and they've said, well, I didn't believe in God, but once I read his word, guess what? I knew it was real. I knew the whole thing was real. God was real, his son was real, his word was real, everything was real. See, once you go into that point and the devil knows you've gone past his element of control, next thing he will try and confuse you with what is right and what is wrong. So this morning what I've tried to do is show you that God spoke, he wrote, and then he copied. And the word of God is inspired. Not only that, it is preserved. And if you remember only one thing from this morning... If you don't believe that God is sovereign and in control of all things, then you can't believe that he inspired this book. And if you don't believe he inspired this book, then you can't believe that he preserved it perfectly in 2015 for you to take home and read.